So last week, by very quick refresher, we put Moses back in the book of Acts. Did anyone get a chance? If you weren't here, hopefully you got a chance to listen to the message. As we looked at one of the, uh, not hidden, it's very, very much there to see that Luke is connecting Moses and Yeshua and these, there's this amazing part of the Spirit and the power of the Spirit that's there. So I, I started out by saying we put Moses back in the book of Acts, but he's already there. He's already there. We just highlighted him. And, and Peter actually makes it very obvious that he's always there because if we read ahead of the chapter that we're in right now, which is chapter 2 in our study in Acts, when we read Peter, he says, He's talking to the Jewish people who are, who are asking questions who need to be saved. And he says to them, the Lord God, Moses said, he quotes Moses and said, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren to him. You shall give heed to everything he says to you. Remember that? Peter is connecting Yeshua to Moses. Why is that so big? First redeemer, second redeemer, final redeemer, ultimate redeemer, but connected to the first. And we talked about that last week, and I'm not going to go over it again, but we skipped over one of the most basic Moshe connectors of the book of Acts, the one that's most obvious, and that is Shavuot, that all of this, and they were gathered together in one place, and what day were they gathered together? It was Shavuot. And so, So, hang on, there's a horrible glare for some reason. There we go, got it. We, uh, and, and last week I told you, Shavuot is, is the Messianic Jewish rabbi's playground because there are so many connectors between Yeshua, Torah, Pentecost, Shavuot, and there's so many different directions we can go. Shavuot, the giving of the Spirit, coincides in a mosaic kind of way, very obviously, with the giving of the Torah, which is sometimes called what? In the, in the Bible, it's called the law of Moses. The law of Moses. But I want to put Moses on pause for just a moment. We will come back to him. And I want to look now, I want to jump into the, into the playground of Shavuot and all the beautiful connectors and symbols and power and everything that's there. And as the day of the giving of his spirit, Luke is writing about it, but Luke didn't pick it. God picked it. God chose this day for the giving of the Ruach HaKodesh. Luke does a tremendous job of writing about it. God picked it. And there are some who suggest that God chose this day for a very particular reason. That God was doing away with the Torah. And in so, th this is of course assuming that the people that are saying this are educated enough to even know that Pentecost coincides with the sh festival of Shavuot, because a lot of people don't even know that. That in many, in many Protestant minds, Pentecost is something brand new. Like it, it has no, it's again, God doing a new thing. And he was, but not totally new. So the idea is by some very popular thinking 
that God chose this day to say, I'm doing away with the Torah. The law of Moses dies today, and now the Spirit rules and reigns. In other words, that the Word of God that you knew, brush it away. And watch these tongues come and the Spirit fall, and, and that this is the new way. <clears throat> that life would now be governed not by God's Word, but by His Spirit. Essentially, the foundation of what had been Judaism was dead. The new living, Spirit-filled church was powerfully declared. And I know at least one prominent pastor in Georgia who would agree with that. Would it surprise you to know that I, however, do not agree with that? Of course, it wouldn't surprise you. Why? Because it's wrong. And I'm cautious sometimes to say that I'm right or wrong about something. But that, I can safely say, is wrong. So that's not it. That's not why God chose Shavuot, obviously, but why? Why did he? There are three considerations today that I want to talk about, and there are many, many more. But these three, first will be kind of a lighthearted, don't have to think too much about it one. Two will be a more midrashic, uh, esoteric kind of way. And one, the last, a creative way of looking at it. And our conclusion, which we won't get to today, I won't be here next week, so this will be the following week, so you're going to have to remember word for word everything I say today for two weeks so that it makes sense when we come back. The last one, the conclusion, will be a take it to the bank, no denying this is absolutely, I can't say why God chose Shavuot, but it's absolutely a deal sealer for this miracle. So which one will you like? You can take your pick, but I'm confident you'll like them all. You ready? Let's start with Shavuot in context. And remember, the context of why we're here is that this is how one of, if not the most powerful chapters in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, for sure, chapter two begins. And it was Shavuot, and they were all together in one place. Suddenly, and then we know what, what happens. What is Shavuot by by its, by its Torah context. It's a festival. It's a particular type of festival. It is a harvest festival. In its early, earliest, our, our earliest introduction. As a matter of fact, in Exodus, it's called Chag HaKatsir. Anyone know what that means? The festival of the harvest. Okay, or ingathering. But ingathering is kind of a better name for Sukkot. So, Hag HaKatsir. This is one of the biblical names of Shavuot, the festival of the harvest, Exodus 23. In another place, in Numbers 28, Shavuot is referred to as Hag HaBikurim. You know what Bikurim are, right? These are your first fruits. So Shavuot is also called the festival of the harvest and the festival of first fruits. Now that confuses me because I thought Yeshua rose on first fruits. He sort of did, but not this one, and we'll talk about it in just a second. And then there's another name in Exodus 34 and Deuteronomy 16. It's called Hag HaShavuot, and we know what this is, right? 
the festival of what is Shavua, Shavuot? What does that mean? Weeks. So here, in its Torah context, a harvest festival, festival of weeks, the festival of first fruits. These are three biblical names. What were we harvesting at Shavuot? What were we celebrating? What, what was coming into the temple? What were the loaves made of? What was happening? Wheat, the wheat harvest. We had started harvesting something 50 days prior. Barley. Okay, so this is the spring harvest season. Barley on the 16th of Nisan, something significant happened on the 16th of Nisan. What was that? The resurrection of Yeshua took place, uh, coinciding with the barley offering, the barley harvest, and then the omer counted for five, seven weeks, and we end up 50 days later with harvesting wheat. What's the connection as for the message that we're giving here? What's the connection? That's what matters. We talked about this a little bit during Pesach this year. Barley, the first of the spring harvest here, barley is a rough grain. It's strong, it's robust, it's hardy. Unlike wheat, it's hard to make little, we talked about this in our message, little dainties, you know, little light and fluffy breads and cream puffs and all the things that we make flour and make wheat to make these things. Barley is, you can just put barley in a bowl and eat it. It doesn't taste good, but you can do that. Wheat doesn't work that way. Got to go through a lot. So wheat is, uh, I mean, barley is, is strong. And barley is the first harvest. Leviticus 23.10. You shall bring an omer from, reshit ketzirchem. You shall bring an omer from your first harvest, a.k.a. your first fruits. Is it then surprising that on 16 Nisan, Yeshua is described by Paul in the book of Corinthians as what? The <clears throat> first fruits of the dead. This is not, this is, this is a simple little thing, right? It's not just coincidence that that's the day Yeshua arose. But that day is really not called first fruits the way that Shavuot is. There were some other first fruits that were coming. <clears throat> How can other first fruits be first fruits? I'll figure it out. 50 days later, wheat, the major harvest, the big harvest, the thing where we're going to make our breads, our matzah, all the different things, the good stuff, actually, if we, if we just want to call it that. Wheat makes good stuff. Barley makes stuff that keeps you alive. <clears throat> Staples, foundation of the diet, the bread. What I would call wheat is the power. Wheat gives us a variety of delicacies and things that we can eat and consume and will draw sustenance from what we make with wheat. How does this matter for what we're talking about? Let's look back at a very famous quotation from Yeshua in the book of Luke, of course. The master Yeshua is sending out the 70 apostles. <clears throat> he says, now after this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them in pairs ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going to come. And then he gives this famous gem. 
And he was saying to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Who is going to be besought? God, the king of the universe, the Lord of the harvest is going to be besought. So who's going to do the beseeching? Well, Yeshua is saying that you should do it. But what actually happens in John 14? Yeshua says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. He will give you what? Acts 1.8, power. And you will be my witnesses. So we've got all this harvest language that Yeshua's got going on here. And we've got this thing about power. And so we started with the resurrection of Yeshua. And we've counted now what? Shavuot. We've counted Hag HaShavuot. We've counted seven weeks to Shavuot. And now we're in Jerusalem. But we're not the only ones in Jerusalem if we're the apostles because it is the festival of Shavuot. It is the festival of Hag HaKatsir, the harvest. Who else is in Jerusalem? Everybody. The whole Jewish world from the diaspora has come in. Who is there? The harvest is there. Hag HaKatsir, the festival of the harvest. And the Lord of the harvest, according to Yeshua's plea who rose on 16 Nisan and is now pouring out for us on the day of the harvest of wheat, the power he's pouring out now upon the first, the foundation. That's what Ephesians says. The, the apostles are the foundation. Now he's pouring out upon them what? The first Fruits of the Spirit. Yom, I'm sorry, Chag HaBikurim. So Shavuot has three names in the Torah. Every single one of them applies to what Yeshua has done for the apostles and indirectly for us. Sending them out as laborers into what? God's harvest. And the harvest on Shavuot happens immediately. How many people become followers of Yeshua that day? 3,000. That's a lot of people. So all of this happens in concert with the names given for the festival, and it's happening. Could God have done it any more beautifully than that? He couldn't. The only one day would work to tie all those elements of first fruits, of power, of harvest. Only one day would work to tie all that together. It had to be Shavuot. That's number one. Number two, there's another significant name for Shavuot that I didn't mention because it's not found in the Torah. It's found in the Mishnah. It's found in the Gemara. It's found in the Targum. It's found in Josephus. There's another name for Shavuot that's called Atzeret. We know the word atzeret from a biblical festival in Leviticus 23 that's called Shmini Atzeret, the eighth day. Shmini Atzeret is coming at the end of the seven days of Sukkot, 
And then for some reason, there's this mysterious thing, Shmini Atzeret, where we just celebrate this now, the eighth day. And some people call that the eighth day of Sukkot, but it's Shmini Atzeret. It's its own deal. What does that mean? What is Atzeret? Atzeret means to hold back. It means to refrain. It means to remain. And so the sages say that on Shmini Atzeret, what God is saying is, I've had so much fun with you in Sukkot for these last seven days. Stick around. Let's have one more gig. Let's have one more throwdown. And so what are you supposed to do on Shmini Atzeret? You remain, not in the sukkah, but you remain with God. Here's a little insight that I like to think I'm right about. I think Yeshua was giving the disciples a little hint. Do you remember what he tells them as it relates to Atzeret? He tells them, I'm going to send you power, but remain in Jerusalem. Now, that's my own little creativity, but I really like it. He's giving him a little, little hint. This thing coming up, Atzeret, something good's going to happen. Something good is going to happen. I believe that they, the disciples, certainly knew that the, hosp- the uh, holiday was called Atzeret. But more importantly, Shmini Atzeret closes Sukkot after seven days, and it also closes out the fall festivals, right? We've had Rosh Hashanah, we've had Yom Kippur, we have Sukkot for seven days, and then Shmini Atzeret. That's the end of the festival cycle for that particular year. So, the sages also saw Shavuot as the close of Pesach. Why? What's the connection? Pesach is the beginning of the spring festivals. Seven weeks transpire and we come to Shavuot, the end of the spring festivals. And so there's a direct correlation between Sukkot, seven days, Pesach, seven weeks, Shmini Atzeret, Atzeret, Shavuot. That's, a, that's a, a traditional Jewish understanding from Chabad. The mitzvah of the Omer count links the festivals of Pesach and Shavuot together. Just as Sukkot concludes with the day of Atzeret, similarly, the day of Shavuot is the Atzeret of the Pesach festival. What's the significance? There's a massively important significance for what we're talking about, or I wouldn't be talking about it. You ready? One story is ending, and another one, an even greater one, is beginning. Atzeret marking the end of something, but it equally shines light on something new, something that's coming. And so if we look at this in the story of Egypt and Pesach and Shavuot, what happened on Pesach? Bondage is ended. The redemption begins right? With the lamb, with Passover. And then we have this Omer count for seven weeks, and that's the travel to Sinai. And then in the Pesach story, we have receiving the Torah on, and we're marked with the sign. We're marked with the sign of the Mosaic covenant, which is Shabbat, 
We're given this symbol and seal from God at Sinai that is the Shabbat. Peace, love, harmony, rest. And he says, you shall be a kingdom of priests after they've received the Torah. And you shall be a light to the nations. So redemption, deliverance from bondage comes to Mount Sinai and ends officially. And something great and beautiful begins. And that is walking out the mission of being God's kingdom of priests. Do do you see a connection? On the 16th of Nisan, I mean on the 14th of Nisan, that year in Jerusalem when Yeshua was crucified. That was the beginning of the redemption. And then we have the Omer count. We have his death. We have his burial. We have his resurrection. We have his ascension. We have these 40 days. And then he says, remain in here because something's happening. We go 10 more days. And what do we have? The end, in a sense, of that story. Not the end of Yeshua. Not the end of the story of redemption and forgiveness. That always stays at the center. That's the story of the center of Passover for all of Israel. How many times a day? Every day do we recount the exodus from Egypt. How many times a day do we recount, God, I hope we do, our forgiveness in Yeshua. So it's not to say that it's, it's forgotten, but that chapter, Yeshua brings that to an end. When? Atzeret, Shavuot, in Jerusalem. And what happens? The next and even greater chapter begins. How can you say it's greater? Nothing could be greater. I'm saying it's greater because Yeshua said it would be greater. He said, after all this happens, you're going to do even greater things. So forgive me if I'm quoting him and saying that I think we're capable of greater things. So what happens? A transition is marked by Shavuot. A transition from that story to the next and awesome great story. Shavuot was the day to remain until the transfer, the conclusion, and yet the supernatural beginning. It had to be Shavuot. That's number two. Glossolalia. You know that word? It's a a word that can get you in trouble real quick in a religious setting. Glossolalia. Tongues. Tongues. Well, actually, in our context here, language. Language. Another word used, and I credit Daniel Lancaster for pointing this out to me. There's another language used in Hebrew, another word sometimes used to speak of languages, and it's lips. Lips. So I love in one of his commentaries, he says, so if they had chosen to use that word, Pentecostal will be seeking the gift of speaking in lips. But we're talking about languages. Gloss alelia. Languages. Language is a huge component of the Pentecost miracle, yes? Huge. As a matter of fact, it has created theologies 
for thousands of years that has created movements, it's a big deal. But that's not the big deal I'm talking about. It's also a huge component of the miracle that took place at Mount Sinai. Did you know this? How can languages and tongues be part of the miracle of Mount Sinai? Well, first and most obviously, God is speaking in a language that everyone can understand. We would like to think, that's a Malcolm X quote. I didn't mean to have it come off that way. That is this uh, idea that everyone who was there could hear God speaking. So language obviously mattered at Mount Sinai, but there's something else, something much more significant to that that relates to our stories. And Midrash, we all know what Midrash is. Midrash is Jewish story that may teach a lesson about something. It's always and obviously drawn and connected to the Scriptures. It's an interpretation. And I've told you this before, sometimes you... you you can't exactly know if Midrash is true or not. And I, I always remind you of this. At one time I was reading Midrash about uh, Moses. I think there are a number, there are seven or eight that are quoted as, or that are counted as being born circumcised by Midrash. And I remember saying, that's stupid. That's made up. How can anyone actually believe this stuff? Only then to do the scientific research to realize that that does happen. And that God could do anything He wanted to do. So there are a number of Midrashim, there are volumes of Midrashim in Judaism. But one of the, there's a prominent theme of language with the giving of the Torah. And we see from a number of sources that the Torah was given at Sinai in multiple languages. Why? 70 to be exact. 70 languages, why? 70 for the nations. 70 from the table of nations in Genesis 10 is the number that is looked upon as representative of the world. So what am I saying? I'm saying, listen to this. The Torah says, and all people saw the voices Note, it does not say the voice, but the voices. Whereby Rabbi Yochanan said that God's voice, as it was uttered, split up into 70 voices in 70 tongues so that all the nations understood. And you say, that's stupid, that's Midrash. Well, have you read Acts 2? When we discuss my last reason, when we get to that in, in a couple of weeks, why God picked Shavuot for this outpouring of the Spirit, we'll come back to this. We'll come back to that Midrash. But for now, I want to say this. Everyone heard the words, actually says they saw, right? They, they um, saw the voices and understood. We were all able at that point to communicate and understand what was being said no matter where we were from. Do you remember another time like this in the Bible? Do you remember another place where this happened? A time when communication was universal? Babel, yes. The Tower of Babel. 
a time when the text tells us in Genesis 11, now the entire earth had the same language with the same vocabulary. What could we do? What were we capable of doing when we were all equipped with one voice? The Bible tells us anything, anything. It says in Genesis 11, God says, Adonai said, look, the people are one and all of them have the same language. So this is what they've begun to do. What have they begun to do? Build this tower. Now, nothing they plan to do will be impossible. This seems great. Wouldn't it be great if we were all unified and and Nothing was impossible. And God says, now nothing they do is impossible. Awesome, great. No, not so great because it depends on your intentions as does anything you're capable of doing. What was their intention? Their intention, Judaism has three different types of people who were represented there, but none of them were good. Their intention, in essence, was to build up a tower, right? Why? Because you could say that they maybe they were mad at God for what they knew He had done to the earth, and they were going to take it into their own hands. And it says, Look, come, let's build ourselves a city with a tower whose top reaches into heaven. So let's make a name for ourselves. That's never a good start. Or else we will be scattered over the face of the whole land. What does this mean? It means we are our own masters. We are our own builders. We don't need God. Let's show Him. Let's build a tower that if He ever thinks that He's going to try to flood this place or He's ever going to do anything to us, We are better than God. That was their intention. And what happened? Turns out, they're not better than God. Because He knows our innermost thoughts. He knows everything before we do it. And what happens when you reject God led to this lack, loss, total loss of comprehension. And what happened then? They were scattered. Come, God says, let us go down and confuse their language there so they will not understand each other's language. This is why it is named Babel. Because Adonai confused the languages in the entire world there. And from there, Adonai scattered them over the face of the entire world. And so it remained. But on Shavuot... The day when God had first communicated with His voice to all the nations in language that everyone could understand about His love, about the future that we could have together. The day which He had previously communicated all of this to us, to Israel, and to the nations. The day that that happened, unfortunately, we rejected it. The nations certainly rejected the Torah. Israel also did not prove to be real good at it. 
So God's speaking and letting everyone hear and saying, something amazing is going to happen. Here, do this. And no, thank you. Related to language. Now, something else is happening. We're communicating again supernaturally, right? Glossolalia. Equipped now with the power to communicate together. And the message is identical to what happened at the Tower of Babel. We're going to build something. We're going to build something with this ability that we have. As I speak and you hear, we're going to build something. In the face of God, no, exactly the opposite. We are going to build the kingdom of God with the power of the Ruach HaKodesh that he has given us today. Previously, he had said, now nothing they plan to do will be impossible. Now the plan was actually going to be realized on Shavuot. Israel, light to the nations. When God gave the Torah, his plan will be realized. And he gives us the ability to communicate, not really in one language, but still in one language. Because what were they speaking? One language. What did everybody hear? A bunch of languages. This is the rejection of the separation that God had caused at Babel. And now, through the gift of glossolalia, through the gift of languages, with this connection to hearing God's word and hearing God's voice in your own tongue, he's restoring us the kingdom. And we are going to build it for the glory of God. And so it will be in the Messianic age. That, that what began on Shavuot, that we will all communicate in the Messianic age in a language we understand. Israel and the nations will hear the voice as they did on Shavuot. And that's what's beginning on Shavuot, the Messianic age. Yeshua has, well, no, I'm sorry, scratch that. We're, we're, we're looking toward, we're having the power to see the Messianic age. The Messianic age doesn't happen until Yeshua gets here. But this is that foretaste, restoring, restoration. Israel and the nations. It had to be Shavuot. That's number three. So why Shavuot? The harvest is rich. The laborers were few. Not so much anymore. 3,000 on Hag HaKatsir are going to build something amazing. The end of the Passover story. The disciples remained in Jerusalem for Atzeret. Prepared now on Shavuot, the harvest festival. I mean, uh, Shavuot, the conclusion, and yet the beginning of the next chapter. And now they're empowered for the journey ahead. And God knows what we're capable of when we communicate together and live according to the Torah. We have this miracle of language, this undoing of Babel, this reconnection to Sinai that's taking place on Shavuot so that all hopefully would hear and obey. And Peter says it so beautifully. The promise is for you and your children and all who are far off, for all whom the Lord God will call and you will hear it. And on Shavuot, you will hear his word 
in language you had to understand. It had to be Shavuot. There's a bigger and more powerful connector, a conclusion that I mentioned already that most clearly illustrates why God chose that miraculous day to change the world. And we'll end our discussion of why Shavuot there in two weeks. Shabbat Shalom.